You may be wondering um, why I'm wearing these, these handcuffs. Who normally wears handcuffs? Prisoners, yeah, prisoners. Um, where do we normally see them used? Sorry? Is it law enforcement? Yeah. In, um, maybe in a, um, in a, leading to a prison or maybe in a courtroom. Um, it's, it's quite restricting. And um, the Apostle Paul has given us a pretty bleak news in the first three chapters of Romans. We're all guilty of sin. We've all been separated from God and we deserve wrath and anger, eternal condemnation. But in the end of chapter 3, we come to some momentous, momentously good news. There's hope. There's, there's a cure, a chance to be free. God has provided an opportunity to make things right. Romans 3.21 says, But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known. We don't usually use the words righteous or righteousness in everyday language. Both words, however, are concerned with everyday matters. A righteous person is one who, among other things, does right or is in the right. So when Paul says in Romans 3.22, This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. He's saying if you believe in Jesus, you'll be declared righteous. And in God's eyes, you're all right. You're off the hook. All clear. Not guilty. The Bible commonly uses words such as righteousness and justification and other related words in a a legal setting where a judge must administer justice righteously. In fact, both the Hebrew and Greek words for righteous and justify have the same root. To justify means to declare righteous. This legal sense of righteousness gives meaning to the biblical teaching of justification by faith. So, every one of us must stand before holy God and he would judge us righteously, fairly. According to God's standard, we're all sinners. We're guilty of falling short. We've messed up. We're not good enough. But now God, being perfectly righteous himself, can't ignore that sin in our lives. And if he did, he he wouldn't be righteous then, would he? So instead of ignoring it, Jesus came and paid the price for our wrongdoing. And if we believe that Jesus has died in our place, we're justified. Just as if we hadn't sinned. Being justified, we are declared righteous before God. Therefore, we're free. We can take these off. Can I get... Maybe this is part of the illustration. You can't actually take... You can't free yourself... You are, we need Jesus, don't we? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Whew. Seems too good to be true to be set free. 
almost wish that we could all wear handcuffs and have that feeling of being um, that really guilty feeling and then being set free. Now Paul um, anticipates the objection to what he's said because it's pretty outrageous. It's pretty revolutionary that people think he's just sort of started, he's just thought it up. And so he writes this whole section that we have as chapter 4 in Romans and he sort of backs up his claim. And so thank you for Fiona for reading it to us. So help us understand this chapter I've divided into three parts. Um, I don't know if you can read that from where you are. Um, so three parts. First part, um, we're justified by faith alone, not by works. Second part, we're justified by grace, not the law. And last part, we're justified by resurrection power, not human effort. So, um, we're justified by faith alone, not by works. Paul proves this point by referring to two of the greatest figures in Israel's history. Two of the big guns, Abraham and David. First, he takes us back to the experience of Abraham. He shows that Abraham was not justified by works. If he did, he would have had something to boast about in verse 2. He could have pat himself on the back, if that was the case, for his earning righteousness before God. But this is utterly impossible. No one will ever be able to boast uh, before God. Scripture makes that very clear. There's no, no grounds for boasting and he, w- and he was, wasn't justified by works. He quotes Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 uh, where Abraham has just defeated the kings and was wondering if they would return to fight again. God appeared to him and assured him that he was his shield and very great reward. But the thing that Abraham wanted most was a son, an heir, God had promised him a son, but as yet the promise hadn't been fulfilled. It was then that God told him to look up in the stars. And he says, so shall your offspring be. God promised and Abraham believed. He believed God's promise. The Hebrew word translated believe means to say amen. God gave a promise And how did Abraham respond? Amen. It was this faith that was credited to him as righteousness. The word credited, or in some translations counted, in Romans 4 verse 3, is a Greek word that means to put into one's account. It's a banking term. The same word is used 11 times in this chapter. When a man works, he earns a salary. And this money is put to his account. But Abraham didn't work for his salvation. He simply trusted in God's word. It was Jesus Christ who did all the work on the cross. And his righteousness was put on Abraham's account. All this brings us to one of the greatest statements in the Bible according to the contrast between works and faith and in reference to the plan of salvation. Verse 4, it says... Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, 
but as an obligation. Think of it this way. Um, You want your house cleaned? Well, you could um, look up Gumtree. Here's here's a cleaner such as Sue. Uh, You can pay her $25 an hour and she'll come and clean your house. So if she does four hours work, that's 100 bucks. 100 bucks that you owe her. She's done the work, you need to pay her. You're not being kind, you're paying her for the work that she's done. Same goes for you. If you do paid work at the end of the week, fortnight or month, whenever you get paid, you're entitled to your wages. You've earned them. You don't need to bow and sort of scrabble before your employer and sort of thank you, <laughs> thank you, you know, for showing such kindness um, and protesting. You don't actually deserve the money. Well, you do. Um, and you don't do that. What do you do? You put it in your pocket and go home feeling like you've been reimbursed for the work that you've done, the time or the labour you've, you've put in. That's, but that's not the way um, it is with justification. Verse 5. Shocking as it may seem, the justified man is the one who, first of all, does not work. He renounces any possibility of earning his salvation. He disavows any personal merit or goodness and acknowledges that all his best labours could never fulfil God's righteous demands. Notice that he believes on him who justifies the ungodly. He doesn't come with a plea that he has tried his best, that he has lived by the golden rule, that he has not been as bad as others. No, he comes as an ungodly, guilty sinner and throws himself at the mercy of God. And what's the result? His faith is accounted to him for righteousness. Because he has, be, he has come believing instead of working, God puts righteousness in his account. Through the merits of the risen Saviour, God clothes him with righteousness and makes him fit for heaven. A person is not made righteous in the sense that a, a piece of metal, you put a piece of metal in a, in a fire and it makes it hot. Um, it's not, not, not how God works. He doesn't make believers righteous. It's not like um, in the sense of improving their standard behaviour so it will satisfy him. But rather he, he, he just declares them to be righteous. Christ has met God's righteous demands by paying sin's penalty on behalf of sinners. God is therefore able to declare those that call on him righteous. The second example that um, Paul uses is, uh, is a quote from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. And it shows that even the great King David anticipated the blessing of a, a covering for sin, that God would not count uh, sins against the guilty. What did Paul see in these verses? 
First of all, he noticed that David said nothing about works. No mention of it. Forgiveness is a matter of God's grace, not of man's effort. Second, he saw that if God covers the sin of David, then David must have a righteous standing before him. Finally, he saw that God justifies the ungodly. David had been guilty of adultery, murder, yet in these verses he's tasting the sweetness of full, free forgiveness. God doesn't keep a record of our works. Um, Sorry, God does keep a record of our works so that he might reward us uh, when Jesus comes, but he's not keeping a record of our sins. So to sort of summarise this section, um, Abraham was credited righteousness, while David's sins are not held against him. So justification, it's not new. The experience of Abraham and David confirm it. When do we read about Abraham? Back in Genesis. First book in the Bible. Back in the Old Testament. Justification is not for the ungodly, not for good people. You don't have to achieve a level of morality before God will declare you righteous. It's just a matter of grace, not of debt. And it's received by faith, not works. A former Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, said, all I have to contribute to my own salvation is the sin from which I need to be saved. Uh, next section. We are justified by grace, not the law. Um, who's seen this sign before? Where would you see this sign? Building site, that's right, building site. Uh, what does it say? Authorised entry only, all visitors report to site office on arrival, high visible clothing must be worn beyond this point, safety, safety footwear must be worn beyond this point. Unless you follow these rules, you're not allowed to enter, right? Whereas Paul argues that there is no rules um, that, you, that we have to follow before we enter. As we've seen in previous chapters the Jew, and throughout the Bible, the Jews glorify, glorify, sorry, the Jews glorified in circumcision and the law. If a Jew was to become righteous before God, he would have to be circumcised and obey the law. Paul had already made it clear in Romans chapter two that there must be an inward obedience to the law and a circumcision of the heart. Mere external observances can never save a lost sinner. But we see that Abraham was declared righteous when he was in the state of uncircumcision. So from the Jewish point of view, Abraham was a, was a Gentile. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised. That was more than 14 years after this event in Genesis 15. 
Verse 11 says he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he held by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Circumcision did not bestow the blessing on Abraham. It was a sign and a seal of the blessing of credited righteousness. So the conclusion is obvious. Circumcision had nothing to do with his justification. But Abraham was also justified before the law was given. When was the law given? Moses. That was like another 480 years after this point. Verse 15, the law brings only wrath because it accuses us and we cannot keep it. Does that mean that Abraham wasn't a sinner because there was no law? Was he already righteous? Well, it goes on to say, and there was no law, sorry, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. no transgression. Transgression means the violation of the known law. It's like a form of rebellion. Paul does not say that where there is no law, there is no sin. An act, an act can be adherently wrong, even if there is no law against it. Cain killed Abel. That was sin, right? But there was no written law. You should not commit a murder. You may, get, you may get to a car park and there's no spots left. So you might find a spot maybe up on the curb in the garden bed. Becomes, <laughs> becomes transgression when a sign goes up saying parking in bays only. You're made aware, made aware of it. That's when it becomes transgression. The key word in this section, however, is promise. Abraham was justified by believing God's promise not by obeying God's law. The promise to Abraham was given purely through God's grace. Abraham did not earn it or merit it. So today God justifies the ungodly because they believe his gracious promise, not because they obey his law. The law was not given to save men, but to show men that they need to be saved. The fact that Abraham was justified by grace and not law proves that salvation is for all men. Not just for Jews, for everybody. Abraham is the father of all believers, both Jews and Gentiles. Verse 16, he's the father of, father of us all. Paul sees for, for, uh, fulfillment in Genesis 17, verse 5, I have made you a father of many nations in this not just for Jews. So in summary of this section, if those who seek God's blessing, and particularly a blessing of justification, are able to inherit, sorry, uh, are able to inherit it on the basis of law-keeping, then faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. What are some ways that we can substitute things, rules, practices for Jesus? <coughs> It was really the only safe way for salvation. It's not to do with salvation, but I have a friend um, who made sure his kids were baptised in the Catholic Church when they were born. Uh, He wanted to make sure that they would be accepted into a Catholic school. 
when they were older. We were talking about this the other day, and I said, um, do, are you, do you believe in God? He said, no. I said, uh, are you Catholic then? Uh, no, I'm not Catholic. And so the only reason he was baptizing his children was because he wanted to guarantee a spot in, in an education system. So he's following, like, ticking boxes, following rules to get, to get in somewhere. What are we putting in place to sort of to secure our spot in heaven? Are we trying to tick a box? Trying to do something? Trying to go to church or give money? Or the Bible makes it very clear there's nothing that you can do but believe in Jesus. He's done it all. <coughs> Next section. We're justified by resurrection power, not human effort. Can we be sure of this? Can we be sure of this? Can we be sure of anything? My dad assures me that Melbourne will have a better year next year. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Can we be sure that Jesus made us righteous and that God is satisfied? Can we be sure of that? Well, just as Abraham uh, believed God could bring an heir from someone who was as good as dead, so we can trust in God who brought his own son um, from death to life. When the promise of a great, um, sorry, when the promise of great generations to come was first made to Abraham, he was 75 years old. At that time, he was still physically able. Because, as we know, he ended up having a child with Hagar, which was Ishmael. But in this verse, Paul's speaking of a time when Abraham was 100 years. And this promise was renewed. By now, the possibility of, of creating new life, apart from a miraculous power of God, had vanished. However, God had promised him a son and Abraham believed. He believed that promise. The apparent impossibility that the promise could ever be fulfilled didn't stagger him. Verse 20, it says, he did not waver through unbelief. God has said it. Abraham believed it. That settled it. As far as Abraham was concerned, the only impossibility was that God can't lie. Abraham's faith was strong and vibrant. He gave glory to God, honouring him as the one who could be depended on to fulfil his promise. Verse 23 and 24, it says, um, We're written not for him alone, but also for us. Our faith is likewise reckoned for righteousness, righteousness when we believe in God, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. The only difference is this. Abraham believed God would give life to the dead, that is, to his weak body in Sarah's barren womb. 
We believe that God has given life to the dead by raising the Lord Jesus Christ. It's already happened. Macintosh, C.H. Macintosh explains, Abraham was called to believe in a promise, whereas we are privileged to believe in an accomplished fact. He was called to look forward to something which was, which was to be done. We look back on something that is done. Even an accomplished redemption, attested by the fact of a risen and glorified Saviour at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. So can we be sure that Christ has made us righteous and that God is satisfied? Absolutely. Absolutely. Verse 25. uh, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. If Jesus didn't die, then our sins weren't dealt with. If Jesus had remained in the tomb, there could be no justification. But the fact that he did rise from the dead tells us the work is finished. The price has been paid and God is infinitely satisfied with the sin-atoning work of the Saviour. If God wasn't completely satisfied with Jesus' work on the cross, why would he raise him to life again? His resurrection was like God's confirmation that Jesus' work on the cross had been accepted. Therefore, our justification is sure. Try to think of an example. Um, let's say I get a parking fine. I call up Dad and say, Hey, Dad, how's it going? Yeah? Oh, that's no good, yeah. I don't know why I keep barracking for them. Anyway, um, I'm not too good either. I just got back to my car and got a, I got a parking fine. Yeah. Yeah, not good. I don't know how they got me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a couple of hundred actually, this one. Hmm. Yeah, they're not, they don't go easy. Um, what? Sorry? You do that for me? Really? Dad, thank you. Dad pays for the fine. Council's happy because the fine's been paid for. The next day I, I, get, caught, I get caught parking in a no-standing zone. <laughs> Call up Dad again. Dad, you won't believe it. <laughs> I was grabbing a coffee. Uh, it wasn't going to be long. Just ducked in, yeah, in a no-standing zone. They, they got me. They're so quick. Um, yeah. I can't believe it, Dad. Sorry, what? No. Oh, you can't again, Dad. Really? Dad. Oh, thanks so much. Cancel have their money. I don't owe them anything. Next day I get held up in a meeting and I'm parked in a clearway. Those clearways. And the time and the spot is supposed to be clear and my car is still there. Didn't take him long, did it? Hey, Dad. (laughs) Guess what? I've got a good dad. Whenever Whenever I get these fines, 
I call up dad and, and he pays for them. But let's say he passes away and he dies. Can't call him up anymore. He can't pay for the fine anymore. So I'm still in debt. It's a limited illustration, but although we don't have to ask Jesus to save save us every time we sin, uh, he is our living saviour. He's there now and forever representing us before God. Got thinking as I was reading this chapter. Why did God choose faith as a means of our salvation? Why did he determine it to be faith? Why choose faith in him? Came up with seven things I think this chapter talks about, seven reasons why God chose faith. Number one, when we trust in God, we have faith in God, we glorify him. In verse 20 it says, uh, Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. When we have faith in God, we're actually giving glory to God. We're not sort of showing anything about ourselves. We're saying that we actually need a saviour to come and save us. It's not about us, it's about God which sort of leads into number two. Faith acknowledges it's not about you, it's about God. Faith takes all honour off ourselves. We were set right not because of our faith, we were set right through faith and by faith. Faith links us to the work of Christ, which which is the foundation of a right relationship with God. Third thing I can find, verse 25, Jesus paid the price. He was the one who died. God was only satisfied with Christ's atonement. God was the one who raised him to life. Number four, faith excludes boasting. Verse two, we've got nothing to prove. Just like Abraham had nothing to prove, we've got, we've got no room to boast. The fifth thing, verse 16, faith accords with grace. The promise comes by faith so that it may be um, by grace. Grace is a free gift. We don't deserve it. Number six, if justification was by, by law or by works, the promise would be worthless because the, because the law brings wrath. Sorry, I said seven, I've only got six. Faith is completely opposite to law, isn't it? Faith is a matter of believing while the law is a matter of, of doing the promise would be worthless because it would be based on conditions that no one would be ever be able to meet. If faith is my response to, to what God has done, where does faith come from? 
It's a gift from God. He's the source of our faith. The faith that we need to link us to the work of, of Christ. Abraham's faith was a model for us. Bible teacher Paul Paul Little, he said, a strong faith in a weak bridge will not bridge the gulf. But a weak faith in a strong bridge will get, get you to the other side. God's method of salvation has never changed. Faith focused on God's gospel is, is always to be the controlling factor in our lives. Abraham is our father in this. Because of him, sorry, because for him, as for us, God spoke and a man believed. Here is God and man in a right relationship. So, to sum all this up, the application of salvation is clear. God must wait until the sinner is dead unable to help himself before he can release his saving power. As long as the lost sinner thinks he is strong enough to do anything to please God, he cannot be saved by grace. It's when Abraham admitted that he was dead that God's power went to work in his body. It's when the lost sinner confesses that he's spiritually dead and unable to help himself that God can save him. God can save you. His promise today is that if you believe in him, he will save you. Humanly speaking, it's utterly hopeless, totally impossible, completely irrational. But God has made a way. Let's pray. Father God, we're so thankful that you have sa- that you have had salvation planned from the very beginning, and that we had nothing to do with that plan. We thank you that because Jesus died on the cross, we can be saved. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to uh, follow any rules. We don't have to be anyone in particular, Lord. We just need to believe in you. You've made it so easy. But God, this is life-changing. Father, help us to, um, to give our lives to you. Help us to surrender our lives to you so that you can use us, Lord. Use us for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.